1: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today welcome to the new books network
0: hello and welcome back to new books in german studies a podcast channel of the new books network i'm your host leah greenberg today i have the pleasure of speaking with Annegret urma about her book the night without boundaries Yiddish and German Arthurian Wiegeleus adaptations, coming out this month with Brill. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us, Annegret. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started, a little bit about our guest today. Uh, Annegret Urma is currently an assistant professor Uh, in the German studies department at the University of Washington, Seattle. She received her PhD in 2016 in German from Duke University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill through the Carolina Duke graduate program in German studies. So we're both fellow graduates of this program, I'm very excited to say. Her research interests include medieval and early modern German and Yiddish literature and pre-modern cultural transfers within a German Jewish context. Her publications on old Yiddish literature, early modern marriage treatises, and a graphic novel have appeared in publications such as The German Quarterly, Ashkenaz, Daphnis, and Arthuriana, among other journals. Her short-form monograph, He Should Have Listened to His Wife, from de Gruyter in 2020, explores female agency in middle-high German and Yiddish-Arthurian romance. She has two books coming up, not just one, Medieval Jewish Romance, a volume she's co-edited with Caroline Grunbaum, and her monograph, The Night Without Boundaries, Yiddish and German Arthurian Vigeloid's Adaptations, which, as I mentioned, is scheduled to come out this month. So before we get into the meat of our discussion about today's book, Annegret, I'd first like to ask you a bit about yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about... um, what brought you to German studies, what brought you to medieval and early modern literature, what brought you to old Yiddish, Um, what brought you to to Seattle and to North Carolina as well?
2: (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, Yeah, I think getting to this point in my research was sort of a series of incidents really. Um, I started my bachelor's at the Freie Universität Berlin in Journalism actually and Jewish studies as a minor. Um, big plan becoming a journalist later. And uh, I hated journalism, I hated the classes, it was just terrible. And somebody told me, Well, I mean, you could just uh, do a bachelor's in German studies, right? That's the classic gateway uh, for Germans, um, to become journalists and work in media. And I was like, well, Okay, that sounds good. And I took an Arthurian class, a class on Arthurian literature that was just utterly fascinating. The professor, Annette Gero Greiter, was so excited about that literature. Um, so a real nerd, you know, loving uh, what she was teaching. I was like, hmm, these medieval texts are really fascinating. So I took more classes. One thing led to the other. In Jewish studies, I took Yiddish also. Out of interest, really no, no specific reason was just like, yeah, yeah, Yiddish, I know some Yiddish songs, I, I would love to take a Yiddish class. And um, then I was really, at some point, I decided to do my master's in medieval German literature. And I had this strange incident, I remember, you know, where I was sitting, sort of the revelation at the library at the Freie Universität Berlin, um, working on a paper for actually a very traditional, like German text, Wolfram's uh, Passiva, Wolfram von Eschenbach. But somehow, in one of the articles, there was a footnote on old Yiddish literature, and I was like, "What's old Yiddish literature? When is old Yiddish literature? Is this pre nineteenth century, even?" And um, it just happened that at this point, somebody was selling one of my colleagues, or uh, like fellow students, was selling a book, Introduction to Old Yiddish Literature. Uh, And I was like, "Mm -hmm, yes, I need that book. Um, So I read this book from cover to cover, and it was really this revelation. It was like this incident when you have the map, and there's this white spot, the undiscovered country right on the map. Um, I'm sorry if these are sort of um, almost colonialist metaphors. But for me, it was really, it, it suddenly filled in, Um, a gap where I had no idea about well of course there are uh, texts sort of non-religious texts in the 15th 16th 17th century among Jews why wouldn't there be and and just reading about them was a big revelation and I started actually my path towards a dissertation with uh, another text a so-called love and um, an adventure novel that's a Contested genre, but it goes back to antiquity about two lovers uh, falling in love, losing each other, and at the end finding each other again. Um, it turned into a great, um, into an article that I'm still grateful for. But um, then I came across, well, Vido and he, yeah, we just had to spend several years together um, to get to know each other better. And this led them to several articles and, as I always say, one and a half books with the short form monograph, right? Yeah.
0: So you've told us a little bit about what brought you then to this book project, but I wanted to go back to what you mentioned. You said you already knew some Yiddish songs. So how does a young Annegret in Zwickau come to learn Yiddish songs?
2: Um, so I actually went after my abitur uh, to Israel for a year. I volunteered there in a house for uh, Shoah survivors and um a lot of those people would still know some Yiddish. There were a lot of um former European Jews and um and they of course the Yiddish speakers just thought well you know German, right? So you know Yiddish. Um which was funny because, well, there's a big gap between understanding Yiddish and understanding German. Not so much for the earlier stages, but perhaps we'll get into that later. Um, but for modern Yiddish, uh, there's a big difference. But so I knew um, some Yiddish music. I was at some point also the uh, choir leader for this house. Uh, we had Friday evening so Shabbat gatherings and I played the guitar and conducted the choir in a very quirky, um, low-key way, but um, and we did Hebrew songs, we did Yiddish songs, so um, yeah, I like the music and and the te- I, I like the sound of the language of Yiddish, so um, that's why when I saw the Yiddish classes offered, I thought, yeah, of course, um, let's take a Yiddish class. The Yiddish classes, however, um, were really interestingly conceptualized. I um, and We're probably going to talk about this later, but a part of my book is also a 1699 um, Yiddish teaching book by Johann Christoph Wagenseil, a Protestant uh, um, and philosopher and Orientalist at uh, University of Nuremberg back in the days. And or at the sub-university of <laughs> University of Nuremberg. And um, he wrote a book that was mostly learning by doing, by translating Yiddish texts into German or the other way around, people would learn. And that's what very much was going on in um, early 2000s Yiddish classes in Berlin, that we would just read the Yiddish foreword or things like this and just make our way along those texts. So I, when I started learning Yiddish, I completely was missing sort of grammatical structures in this because it was, well, it's just like German. So let's just together read it and figure out with a dictionary at hand um, what the words mean.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you do mention some of the... Important uh, entanglements between German and Yiddish, and then you go further back, looking at old Yiddish, which is also a very different um, arena than looking at, at more modern Yiddish texts. So, could you maybe then lay out for us? Then you, know, you mentioned how you came to your book project. What is the sort of thesis of your book? Uh, what are the the key stories and texts that you're working with, and why are you talking about them together?
2: Yeah, in order to sort of explain the the larger thesis of the book. I should add one more thing, um, and that is that the Yiddish world is actually based on a Middle High German text um, from around 1210, 1220. Um, it's called Vigalois, uh, yeah, Middle High German Arthurian romance, And the Yiddish text is an adaptation of that text. And from there, uh, we have many adaptations. We have a really rich tradition of German Yiddish texts, texts that go back and forth, At some point, the tradition gets mediated through this Yiddish textbook that I mentioned from the end of the 17th century and creates this rich uh, tradition of texts that inspire each other that cross a lot of boundaries, linguistic, temporal, um, religious, cultural boundaries. And the aim of the book is to show that we can't really understand these texts Separately, we have to see them in the larger context without emphasizing um, a Jewish, a Yiddish, um, a Christian, German tradition. Um, because, first of all, those terms don't apply throughout the whole time and they're just incredibly restrictive. And I think that that's also what led me to this project a little bit the frustration that the Yiddish texts would be explored by some Jewish studies scholars, barely by German studies, um, and the other way around, of course. So I think um, in order to really understand this tradition, the fascination of Vigalois or Wie Wild, how he's called in Yiddish, um, through more than 800 years, we need to see this as a shared um, story, as a shared narrative tradition in which people contribute at different times um, with very different intentions um, consciously, unconsciously, knowing about all the adaptations, not knowing about more than one adaptation to this tradition, and then creating sort of a whole thing that goes back and forth. And that really sort of shows that this quirky knight called um is overcoming all these boundaries and restrictions. And restrictions that we would expect, for example, from an um, Arthurian knight, if you consider King Arthur also as a sort of Christian figure, messianic figure, um,
0: yeah, and so just to give some some temporal boundaries or or, or put it in in place exactly what uh, time period we're talking about when we talk about the emergence of the Vigiloy story, can you give us a sense of when and where we first find these texts?
2: Mm-hmm. So Vigalois itself is it's debated. <laughs> it uses some old French material. Potentially, um, some people consider it. Actually, an adaptation of it. Some people say, like, oh, it's just using some elements from a, uh, another story, Le Bel Inconnu. And um, basically, early 13th century, we have this Middle High German also in Romance. In general, early th- 13th century is a great time, sort of end tw- of 12th century for authorian stories in a German context. Um, we have first Old French stories, and they make it quickly into Middle High German adaptations. So they are very popular at the court, you know, um, narrating Arthurian stories at this time. Um, so Vigaloise, and we'll, well, we'll probably talk about Vigaloise a little bit more later. But Vigaloise itself is a sort of classic in a sense Arthurian tale. But then, then it's already a big question and something that medievalists are used to or early modernists, then at some point we have those 16th century manuscripts. We have three Yiddish manuscripts. Um, So, yeah, we're skipping 300 years here Um, that clearly show an engagement. It's a Vigaloist adaptation. There's no doubt about this. And the question is what's in between? Is there anything in between? Um, did the adapter actually know Vigalois? Did the adapter know some of the prose adaptations of Vigalois or other in between um, texts? I th- I think the question is it's sometimes a little bit it's not necessarily always fruitful to try to reconstruct what's in between. I think at this point we have to accept VidoWild as a Vigaloist adaptation and see, well, how do they interact and have Vigaloist as a reference. So we can't, of course, um, study the line line by line. Um, we can't study it as a line by line comparison, but we can look at, at sort of like general tendencies that are different and uh, there's a lot of differences between video world and Vigaloist. It's just left open what happens and at what point does it happen? Is it really the, yeah, who creates the video build? And as I said, we already have three manuscripts, which shows, okay, at some point we have the story um, in Yiddish. We have the manuscripts that are uh, likely from Northern Italy, which is actually not uncommon for Yiddish at this point, but it's unclear how old the story of Wiedewild then really is. This adaptation, is it 100 years old? Is it 200 years older? Um, I think that's the most that scholars want to push it, sort of 200 years. Um, yeah, and then we have even in that sort of Wigalois Wiedewild tradition, a print from um, the late 17th century, that actually gets adapted then into this Yiddish teaching book. And so the print itself is then already fascinating, um, almost more than the manuscripts. Often enough, they are just folded into a Yiddish video world. Um, sometimes they are just referenced as such in scholarship without differentiating, but there's also quite some difference between the manuscript and, um, and the print, the late 17th century print.
0: So in all of this, adaptation is a very key term, and you also work with the framework of adaptation studies. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more also how you look critically at the terms adaptation, retelling, translation.
2: Uh, Yeah, that was, I think, one of the biggest issues I had when working on this. So what what do I call those things? Um, I, I can see there's a relation between those texts, but... How do we call them? Um, so at some point, I went down the rabbit hole, you know, um, reading a lot on translation, even Benjamin, the translator, um, historic approaches to medieval Latin translations done in a medieval German context. Of course, the words for retelling, weiter or wieder erzählen, are also central concepts. There, several scholars have worked on these. And um, eventually I realized that the word adaptation, also in German, adaption, is something that just keeps popping up. Even in the very um, strongly argued papers on no translation is not the word to use for medieval studies. We cannot, we should use retelling or text it to the opposite. It's interesting that people often go back to call those texts adaptations uh, and not weitererzählungen, like retellings or things like this Um, in the context of translations is, of course, slightly different. But um, then I realized that there's actually a whole adaptation theory. Uh, Fortunately, unfortunately, it's a modern theory that came about through studying the relationship of books and movies. So how do movies relate to books? And um, and scholars developed this theory, often considering, or one of the classic definitions would be considering adaptation and extended, uh, deliberate revisitation of a work of art, of a specific work of art. And that became sort of a working term that I found very useful. What I really like about the adaptation studies um field is that despite being mostly english studies people who do film book relations um it allows for reflections on on a democratisation of the field so without reconstructing oh what's the real that's the book is of course the, the real deal right and then we have the movies and they're just well they're just movies they're not as good so it goes away from putting a value, uh, a validation also on sort of the first part Mm. of an adaptation tradition. And um, it also stresses that there can be different entry points. Um, And we're probably talking later about the comic. There's a comic, a Vigalois comic. And um, the Vigalois comic really plays with the idea that people might have never heard about Vigalois and read the comic first and potentially then go and read the book. Or that there are well scholars and nerds like me who are like, Oh, there's a comic about Vigalois, that's so great. I should read that and um and, and get to the comic, however, from for example Wern von Grafenberg's Vigalois from the thirteenth century. So we have different approaches and then we read the adaptations differently. Um so for for a person who started with the comic and then um, reads the Middle High German text in translation, um, of course, the reference point is a comic. For me, the reference point, um, even though I tried to work against this, but still the inherent uh, reference point would then be the Wigelois text from the 13th century. And adaptation studies really stresses that, that there are different entry points into adaptation traditions that really form how an audience receives um, one text or the other. And in, in the field of yeah, medieval German studies and really German studies in, in its early forms, um, there was the search for an original reconstructing through different manuscript the original of a text. And people have hence gone away from this for, for various reasons. Often it's just futile and we just have too little information, but also um, because they're deliberate changes in manuscripts often enough that are not just mistakes. We have mistakes, you know, like a tired monk. Um, it's late, it's dark, there's just one candle. Well, you make a mistake. <laughs> but um, we also have deliberate changes. Uh, most famously in the Nibelungen tradition, we have uh, two different manuscript traditions that sort of blame different people for for the um, downfall of the Nibelungen. And so... When I saw adaptation studies and the way they approach it, I thought, "Oh, but a lot of those things are actually fairly medieval or common in medieval studies. This not stressing of uh, that's the original, that's the first iteration, that's really the core um, iteration of an of a story." Um, and yeah, and and that's how I found adaptation studies fairly liberating. And also useful in just looking at those different texts, especially when often enough, I don't hundred percent know what is the exact reference. Sometimes I know sometimes an an author and adapter tells us it's like, Oh, this is what I read. Um, Sometimes we don't know. And then it's also hard to reconstruct the exact relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. And then going to one of the texts that serve as a jumping off point, um, then for, for its later iterations is then Vian's Vigalois story that you talk about in in one of your early chapters. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how this story deals with boundaries and the crossing of boundaries, the representation of Christian and and non-Christian figures, for example.
2: Um, Yeah, Vigelois is a fascinating text that was first dismissed among early scholars um, for just being too strange, too weird. It has a lot of... um, apocalyptic imagery. So, well, I should say first, um, it's a classic Arthurian tale in the sense that we have one of King Arthur's knights of the table round, um, Vigalois, who rides out on a quest, on adventure. Um, in this case, he frees an enchanted kingdom and uh, returns home um, now with a bright, convenient um and this later reinstated as king or instated as king of his own kingdom. However, um, there's a whole second part, and I'll come to this in a second, um, that makes it a very strange text. But already, sort of early scholarship said, ah, this is so full, so ripe of not even religious imagery, but sort of magical, mystical images. Um, this is just weird. Let's read another text. Mm-hmm. And so. That's one thing that clearly Vigalois does. He brings together uh, strictly Christian religious and not strictly Christian religious imagery. I think when we have issues with seeing this in the text, we also have to ask ourselves what what sort of like Christian concept do we have? And there, by this point, a lot of studies on also questioning sort of what's the medieval courtly God, um, you know, what's medieval, christianity It's not our um, sort of Protestantized um, form of religion anymore. And I must say I struggled with the text or with the boundaries between sort of Christian imagery and, and general sort of supernatural images initially. Um, but then I went to Peru for the first time. And um, fun fact. And it was so interesting seeing religion in Peru. That's so different for somebody who grew up um, in sort of, again, a Protestantized uh, universe in Germany. I was like, oh, well, there are a lot of magical things that they're doing. I had um, our host was very kind and offered me... um, sort of a blessing Oh, I wanted to do something nice for me. And so I got to at a marketplace hold a horseshoe, put my hand in the horseshoe. I was supposed to make a wish on this horseshoe. There were images of Mary and um, the person who was giving the blessing, basically took my hand with the horseshoe over incense and uttered a prayer to the Virgin Mary. I it's like, Oh, Wow, just wow. This was a mix of things that, I don't know, my upbringing would have considered clearly not religious and things that are inherently Christian. So um, that helped me also approach this text differently and think like, well, maybe we put on those categories. This is supernatural, non-Christian, this is Christian. That just weren't a problem for the audience then, um, or maybe for the 19th century readers. Um, So this is a big boundary that the text crosses. Further, as I said, it has a whole second part after Vigalois happily uh, is united with his uh, sweetheart, formerly damsel in distress, heiress to the enchanted country. Because um, another lord, or, or, well, he's approached to help another lord who is uh, currently besieged. There's a whole battle and the second half, or the the last third of the text, is just epic battles um, that a lot of people don't consider Arthurian, not being part of Arthurian romances, medieval Arthurian romances. Uh, their the discussions? Was it added later? Was it not? Um, what can we do with that? And interestingly, it's not just scholars who were confused by that. The early adapters all were. So already in the video world, this whole battle, epic battle section is completely cut. Um, in the early Height German prints and adaptations, this is cut, so <laughs> beyond sort of Wiegerlois, uh, beyond Wörnd of Grafenberg, nobody really knew what to do with that. But I actually argue in the book that it's a fascinating section of the book in which Wörnd actually experiments with the boundaries of and romance and brings in different traditions. So already Middle Ages had sort of ideas of different stories story traditions Um, already in the 12th century, we have an old French poet talking about um, basically one story box stories pertaining to antiquity, one um, stories pertaining to King Arthur and his knights and one pertaining to Charlemagne and Charlemagne's fights against the Heathens. And so what then does is actually use the Arthurian story and bring in these antiquity stories and the stories concerning Charlemagne and Charlemagne and the heathens. And so I considered it a huge literary experiment that weren't constructs here that, again, didn't go down well, apparently, with audiences. I, don't, I mean, the text was very popular, Vigelois itself, but with later audiences, already sort of 15th, 16th century, that said, uh, no, let's just make it a straightforward Arthurian tale. This is strange. Let's just cut it. But so he also plays with literary expectations, with literary traditions um, by bringing in Amazons, for example, so classic antiquity features, or heathens, very courtly heathens. This is something that we often associate with Wolfram von Eschenbach's um, Wilhelm, the heathens that are mirrored according to the courtly sort of Christian knights, and so we have all of this, however, in an Arthurian romance here. So he's also crossing a lot of boundaries from, um, in sort of a narratological way and uh, just bringing in different story traditions.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: So also when you you talk about the Yiddish version of this text, the Vidovod story, you also talk about how it sometimes subverts our expectations of a text that engages with religious topics. So I was wondering if you could tell us also a bit more about how the Viduvild story um, goes beyond an engagement with Jewish topics and why it's important to think about it beyond sort of a Christian-Jewish divide?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you. This this is a great question. This is actually how I got started on this, this whole topic. I got interested because a lot of scholarship focuses, and and rightly so, on the question that you just asked, how, how are Christian elements dealt with in this text. This is presumably for a Jewish audience, although we can also debate this a little bit because the old Yiddish is so close to German that if it's read out, um, people would understand it without issues So German speakers. So there's also a little bit of debate here. But if we assume for, for a moment a Jewish audience as a target audience, then that's a good question to ask, right? How do you get away from this immense Christian imagery. And we have that. We have even God acting on behalf of Vigalois within the, within Vigalois. So, um, and, and he's praying this Christian, really inherently Christian imagery. So something needs to happen on the way to the Jewish audience. And um, these were the, the questions that were first asked in scholarship. And one of the things that we certainly see is is this so-called de-Christianization and we have um, a few Jewish elements. But what I found really interesting when I read scholarship and read text, I thought, hmm, but things like Pentecost, for example, remain in the text. Pentecost is, of course, um, the Feast of the Holy Spirit, uh, one of the, especially in the Middle Ages, core Christian um, events on the calendar. Why is this in a Yiddish text? Why would this remain in a... Yeah, and a text with a Jewish audience in mind. And um, one of the reasons that I think is that Pentecost is just a huge courtly feast. So it's just been synonymous for, okay, there's a party at the court going on, and it's a big one, and it's a long one. Um, you might have uh, people being knighted in the context of Pentecost celebrations. But certainly, um, it's, it's a big court date. It's a big court feasting date. So when we see this, we assume that the Jewish audience was able to decipher that and said, oh, Pentecost. Yeah, of course. That means at King Arthur's court, there was a huge party going on, or this, this is the season of festivity, of joyfulness, of um, courtly joy. Uh, so this is one of the things that um, that is interesting then to look when we think, oh, why are there some Christian elements left in that? Because it assumes some sort of familiarity. If we take this further, um, with the material or with the expectations of uh, the material, and um, and otherwise, the text uh, is just not really concerned with the religious elements that Lois is concerned with. Or Wern is concerned with. Um, it turns it more into a actually funny text, but. Sometimes I get actually frustrated by the the constant sort of looking for Jewish and Christian elements in the text because um, when I started working on this project and, and read Vidovald, I thought, "Hey, the big change here is that suddenly women are put in important positions of power," and that's what my first oh my my first small book was about uh, the women in Vidovald, and it's just so in your face, how how the gender roles are inverted and changed. But at the same time, it was almost completely ignored in scholarship. And I mean, I'm able also to do what I'm doing because there has been scholarship, right? So I'm, I'm deeply indebted to the people who've worked on on Vidoville to make it more popular and who already took care of the whole Christian Jewish discussions. But I was frustrated that somehow this this whole clear change in in the storytelling was lost in the discussions because we were so focused on on sort of drawing those Christian, Jewish, uh, Yiddish, German boundaries, uh, which is one thing that I really tried to work against by deciding to put in my book, different texts from different religious, cultural, different linguistic, um, different lingual backgrounds. Um, so I'm sorry that I almost criticized you for the question. I uh, so so I just want to make a point that um, it is a good and a, it's an important question as long as it doesn't get or as long as it doesn't bury the actual text and the actual text tradition and seeing like, oh, well, let's just look at the text. And here's where adaptation studies comes in, in sort of like freeing us, um, to look at, at an artwork also as the artwork itself as the adaptation. So there's this three partite concept of adaptation as sort of a reiteration of a text, um, as an artwork itself and as sort of like a future entrance point into adaptation studies. And I really like, especially in the context of Vida, world, also stressing this stepping back for a moment and really seeing the text as the text itself. What happens here in the storyline? Um, how are women constructed? How's the night constructed? Uh, before just looking, okay, we know this is a adaptation for a Yiddish-speaking audience. How is it different then than the text
0: before it? Mm. And and you bring up the issue of of not just adaptations of stories but also of of reception and different contexts of retelling and so in your fourth chapter when you talk about Johann Christoph uh, Wagenseil that's another example of a a new context in the late 17th century of retelling yiddish material so i was wondering if you could tell us more about what that context is in terms of the discourses on language and nationalism in this time and why was this author even engaging with Yiddish material?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Wagenseil actually does not think that Yiddish is a great language. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't even consider it a language. So, great great motivation to write a Yiddish teaching book. Um, he considers it bad German. There are some very harsh quotes in the text um, in, in Wagenseil how uh, well the Jews have yeah, what the Jews have done to good German um, in order sort of to get to Yiddish. And and so it's a very strange place uh, to find a Yiddish in romance. Also, it's a very long text. But basically, what Wagenseyer does, as I mentioned earlier, he has a textbook in which he gives a very brief introduction to the structure of Yiddish. Um, an extremely long introduction considering or concerning his thoughts about Yiddish, about German, his ideas of language. um, And Dan has a long list of exercises, um, really translation exercises. Uh, There are also Talmudic stories, um, legal texts. uh, It's an incredibly strange mix of texts. And that Yiddish, that the Bidowelt is in there is fascinating um, and strange Wagnseil also offers us an introduction and that goes a little bit in your direction of national uh, traditions because in his introduction to Bild, he explains to his audience who likely did not know Arthur at this point, Um, so I should have said uh, King Arthur stories were not really popular in 16th, 17th century, um, early 18th century um, Germany. And so he explains, so there's this King Arthur, bear with me for a second. The English believe in them. They also think he comes back at some point. How crazy is that? But that's the story tradition. And we Germans, we have heroic epics, right? We have um, Dietrich von Bern. We have the big... um, heroes around Charlemagne and everybody. This is our story tradition. Now come in the Jews. And the Jews had this funny idea of mixing them together and created this author story. Um, and he explains actually the existence of some fantastic literatures that, well, we know were part of the medieval, middle-high German tradition with the existence of um the English Arthurian story. So he doesn't, Wagner doesn't really know about Arthurian stories, has no idea about Wagner, uh, <laughs> sorry, But he explains, well, the Jews took those Arthurian stories and mixed in our heroic epics and this is what we get. A really quirky story, interesting, fascinating, or no, he doesn't really con fascinate, but like, he's like, yeah, so here we are. Um, I think he also just, had some fun reading the text because part of his argument in in the book is that Yiddish texts can also be quite interesting. They're not, uh, even though he doesn't like the language itself, but he says, you know, some of them are just really entertaining to read. And I think that's where Abidu world falls in. Mm-hmm. But as I said, uh, Yiddish is not his favorite language, again, not even a language for him, um, and not considered a language for a long time. But um Hebrew is great. Hebrew, Wagenseil uh, loves Hebrew. He comes out of the tradition um, of the humanist movement, the Christian humanist movement, with their goal, at fontis to the sources, let's learn Hebrew. Um, and Yiddish, basically for Wagenseil, is just a gateway to Hebrew. There's some other reasons also, um, sort of one of his secondary audiences are actually Jews, because he said, well, they should learn good German, but nobody's taking care of that. So here's my book. So if you are here to speaking Jew, you might as well just read my book to learn proper German. Um, but his main audience were German-speaking Christians interested
0: ultimately in learning Hebrew. And That then brings me to your fifth chapter where you talk about another uh, text, which is the Gabine story. And I believe you've published on this uh, in uh, Arthuriana. And I want you to maybe tell me a bit as someone who doesn't work with medieval and early modern materials, what are some of the challenges and perhaps also the rewards of working with medieval source materials when you don't have perhaps a complete text, for example?
2: Um, thank you. Yeah, the Garbein is really something that that I'm proud of because um, it's a fairly forgotten text. It's in an appendix um, to an early 20th century collection of world stories and um, it's just such a strange and fascinating in text that um, I was very happy that I got the chance to translate it into English. Um, this is an article in Arthuriana with a sort of some introduction to it. I noticed some advertisement, but I'm really, I feel like here I was actually doing a service to this tradition and to also our discipline. I mean, um, yeah, if for class, you did a very strange authorian text, um, go and find this article, Teach Gabain. More people need to know Gabain and work on this very strange text. Um, with limitations, they're working on it as, uh, as you hinted, because we actually do not have the Yiddish text. Um, some people would say Yiddish question mark because it's a strange text. The language is completely strange. Um, We know it was printed in Hebrew letters, um, but it's preserved only in transliteration. Um, We have yeah we we can trace a little bit the text in the text history but we're incredibly limited in in accessing this text uh there's the front page and i think the the last page of the text are actually also preserved as a copy in a journal but um but mostly we have this transliterated text of something that doesn't even look like yiddish or that that just looks strange it's also not german um yeah so it's it's hard to deal with a text when you can't even identify its language, um, let alone actually have the source at hand. So there are always limitations in how to interpret it. What context is it from? Um, There are some theories aligning it with a pietist movement that also impacted um, the Jews um, of the 18th century. But... It leaves us with, with more questions, this text really that we have answers. Um at the same time, it is actually fascinatingly dedicated to um to Prussian king Frederick Wilhelm II. And um it's a it's a really Prussian text somehow. So it, it includes court ceremonial that you would find in Prussia. It follows up on the fascination with um. With China of the time, yeah, I should have said, uh, so Garvine is actually Garvine. so it's the Videwild story, but it focuses a little bit more on the storyline concerning Videwild's father, Garvine, the most famous of All Night, um, see the recent uh, Green Knight movie with Dave Patel, that's Garvine for you. Um, so Garvine, most famous of Authoring knights, is, or well, probably in a competition with Lancelot, but. Famous. Um, He's the father. And here we have a text where Gabine um, travels through many countries, Russia, um, he visits Sardinia and ends up in China and ultimately actually becomes the new emperor of China. Um, When I read it the first time, I was like, what, (laughs) what just happened? Um, And and was also very excited of having found such a spectacular text so we have an authoritarian knight in a Yiddish question mark text who becomes the emperor of China. So many yeah, amazing things basically been happening already. But it's really hard to reconstruct um, the actual context. Are there other sources for this text? So so in my field, we work with a lot of question marks, right? And one way to work with that is just having reference Text that we say like okay I don't know how they're really related but this is sort of my big reference because at some point they are related or somehow they're related I cannot tell you exactly how but video is clearly related to Garbine I cannot give you all the stages the steps in between but sometimes this is also freeing because it really allows you to focus on the text as such without considering all the time you know mm, how is the model uh in this section or how does the model text approach this question so it's also sometimes really freeing um, and sometimes when I you know hear uh, colleagues who are really um, dealing with with contemporary authors who then publish new things and these texts or these new publications basically destroy earlier uh, scholarly articles that were written about living contemporaneous authors or contemporary authors I think like okay yeah I Usually I don't even have a name for authorship, so it's nice to not have that problem.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned also how you encourage the teaching of this text that's a bit less known. And I was wondering if you could also tell us a bit about how you bring your work from this book into your teaching and bringing both medieval and early modern German literature with old Yiddish literature and showing their entanglements
2: Um, Yeah, I I have to do another advertisement, I'm sorry, there's actually an MLA um, book coming out, uh, one of the great MLA teaching series on teaching the authorian tradition, and I wrote an article for that collection on how to teach sort of the Jewish tradition, and with some ideas how to teach the Yiddish, the Hebrew texts. I think Gabine is just great because it's different, it's strange. You and it's such a unique text that it's okay if students don't know everything surrounding the Arthurian tradition or something like this because, well, we are a long way from the medieval Arthurian romances um, by this point, also in the way the text is constructed. And I like it. It's a short text. It's I think it's twelve pages. in the, in the appendix to this 20th century collection. So it's it's a very short text. You can quickly read the whole text. Um, and it ties also, it ties into ideas of colonialism. There's this sort of idea ex- expansion, um, exoticism, sort of there's a big fascination and sort of exoticizing of China as sort of now new, basically fantastic realm for this um, audience audience. Um, for its late 18th century audience. And so the text lends itself very well to bring author into contemporary discussions, sort of what do stories still mean to us? How do stories um, create otherness, identity, um, represent outside of them, other groups? Um, how can we also bring in discussions, you know, about Post colonialism, um, diversity into our reading of texts that are older, that are not from our times. And, um, and yeah, so I, I like particularly teaching um, this short text, but I also try, of course, in my King Arthur class to bring in, for example, Viduville, or there's a Hebrew text, sometimes uh, called an anti author in Romance, a medieval um, Hebrew. Arthur fragment um, that deals more with the downfall of, uh, of the Arthurian realm. But, but things like this, just to show my students an alternative narrative to um, well, maturity culture storytelling and to, to show, well, somehow the story was so fascinating that a lot of different groups interacted with it and made it their own and thought it's worth continuing to tell it and, oh. and listen to it.
0: Fascinating, and I imagine you're able to do this at, at different levels of, of of language and both undergraduate and graduate students.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm. And sort of like sometimes in English translation, I mean, almost exclusively English translation, but um, yeah, yeah, I it's, it's of course a very different tradition in a graduate seminar on King Arthur um, and in an undergraduate seminar, although, um, I mean most of my graduate students are not medievalists, right? Or don't take that many medieval classes. So it's also nice uh, in that regard that they don't bring too much expectation or understanding to the, to the table and have sort of like a very free approach to
0: the material. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, (laughs) I would, I would want to take one of your classes. So, one of my final questions then is, what are you working on next now that you've um, finished this, this big project? What's piquing your curiosity? Anything in the works right now?
2: Thank you. Uh, that's that's a great question. I um, I was a little bit afraid, you know, letting go of VidaWild. There's so many du Vigaloy's adaptations. it's a whole universe and, and we spent so much time with each other that I was a little bit scared you know leaving this behind and thinking what's next? Um, and just through rereading some old Yiddish texts, preparing well conference presentations um, and other events, I got really interested in the construction of otherness, um, a classic topic in um, early modern medieval German literature studies. But, um, yeah, I, I noticed that, of course, we don't have so much the heathen. Well, sorry, in the Christian text, we often have, like, the heathens as the others, um, the Jews as sort of, like, complicated others, um, and there's a whole discourse around them. The Jewish texts or the old Yiddish texts that I've been looking at don't really have that so much, but they have often one fantastic creature that combines all sort of, like, otherness attributes. So, I really got interested in that and, and, and think this is going to shape up to sort of like a project of otherness in these texts. Um, in addition to that, um, the, for example, the, the great Bove Buch, Buch, um, which in itself is part of a long adaptation tradition, the um, Buch, deals a lot with race and otherness, and um, if you know medieval studies, maybe you know that there's currently, or for the past few years, um, a huge increase in discussing race and racism in medieval studies. Can we call it race? Can we call it racism? Um, when we talk about medieval literature, and there's a big push to, to use um, racism in the context of these medieval studies, um, when we consider sort of like physical and, and uh, yeah physical othering all sort of in a power discourse, and um I noticed that the old Yiddish texts are actually maybe not as inclusive as one might think or as we often falsely assume um from well, it's a minority culture right they are tolerant they are um they're they're happy to include people from far away uh, that look very different and here I found some texts now um. that are are fairly dismissive of people they reference as plaque, that they also um, create as like others often, also in the context of Islam. And um, this is in the context of medieval, not medieval, early modern Ashkenaz. So I think um, we have different regions where this discourse would be quite different. But so I've been starting to slowly sort of get into more research on the construction of race and otherness in these old Yiddish texts, um, and to see sort of like how is sort of the identity then out of the hero shaped and created, and what is it that it's created against. Um, and I think this this will probably yeah also <laughs> turn into a huge project of um, probably more than a book. But I'm I'm very excited. I'm so at the beginning of new research. And I feel really the enthusiasm of of going into a completely new and and very different um, area of of all Yiddish literature and its interactions with the German literature.
0: Fascinating. Well, I can't wait to see the many articles and conference papers and eventually perhaps a book that will come out of this. So thank you so, so much for sharing with us about your newest book and about your research today and also about your teaching. And I wish you all the best, all the best luck in the future and look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much, Lea. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.